Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 22. We'll be reading in verse 66 and into chapter 23 to verse 25. Luke 22, beginning in verse 66 and into 25 of the following chapter. These are the moments the Lord Jesus is before the religious tribunal and the Roman court system. Luke twenty-two, sixty-six. Hear God's own true and eternal word. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him... Lord Jesus, into their counsel, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I ask also you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him, with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. And lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release us unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. 
but he delivered Jesus to their will. Thus far, may God bless the reading of his own word. And let us see your congregation, the trials of the Lord Jesus are so foundational to the Christian faith that they are summarized in this shortest creed that the church of the Lord Jesus has, the Apostles' Creed. In Article 4, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. In this little phrase, the the creed, of course, is is summarizing um, what what the Gospels bring more fully. The Lord Jesus, He he was not only before Pilate. There There were two sets of court proceedings. He was before Annas and then Caiaphas, and then Caiaphas again. Caiaphas at night, and then Caiaphas early in the morning. That's The first set was all before the religious court system of the day. The high priests, and the chief priests, and the council, the Sanhedrin. And once they decided that he was worthy of death, that he was supposed to receive the capital punishment... They were armed with that accusation and led Jesus to the Roman court. And there Jesus followed also uh, 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 three sets of proceedings. He was before Pilate first. Pilate sent him to Herod and Herod sent him back to Pilate. And the creed, in a sense, is referring to, to the very last one because Pilate is the one who officially sentenced Jesus to death in a way that would be acceptable under Roman law. The, the Jewish people had done that, but they did not have the authority to, to execute the Lord Jesus. If, if they had done it and if they had the authority, they would have stoned him. It is amazing how even that could not happen because Jesus could not die of stoning. He had to die of crucifixion. This is why there is even that one article. Is there something more than to the fact that he died the death of the cross as if to say, couldn't he have died any other way? And the answer is no, he he couldn't. It, It had to be a death by which he would symbolize to all who were watching that the curse was upon him. And so the religious system, even though they would like the authority to kill them, they couldn't. And that was God's way to even put in this principle that was necessary. He was not to be stoned. He would have to be crucified. So the Roman system had to continue the proceedings. And once it finally comes before Pilate, he sends him to the cross. So that one article he suffered before Pontius Pilate is there's a metaphor in there in that it is really relating to all of the tribunal experience of the Lord Jesus before the religious system, before the civil authorities. And Jesus had to be judged. Now, beloved, the the answer that is given, we, we can't escape and we can't just go by the depths of what it means that he, the Lord Jesus, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, Pilate, and then Herod, and then Annas and Caiaphas, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. This is the main point of this whole sermon for this evening. Every, everything else we will say is following the narrative. But what does this narrative mean? Why, why did Jesus have to be judged in a temporal tribunal, a human tribunal? Because that too was the way that Jesus was paving the way for anyone who trusts in Him to be able to stand before the divine tribunal of God. We know how Revelation ends God opens the books and He has the peoples who resurrected from the oceans and from the land and those who were living are now before God. The Lord Jesus brings that parable where He separates His sheep and His goats and each will be judged by their works. And our works will be related to whether we trusted and repented whether we trusted in Christ and repented before God. 
And it is Jesus who is able to keep you on that day that you will stand and not fall. And so with this introduction and seeing why this is so important, it's not just a little narrative, it it is critical to salvation. Let's start, number one, under this title, Art Thou the Christ? This is the question that Caiaphas asked, the chief priest asked the Lord Jesus. Um, in, In the second point, we will look at the question Pilate asks, Art Thou a King? Um... And art thou the king? And then in the tribunal before Herod, I picked out the phrase that, I don't know if, 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 if it is your experience, but that's the phrase that pricks my heart the most of what happened to Christ before Herod. A man who receives Christ in a seemingly positive way. Verse 8 says he was exceeding glad. And yet this is a man to whom that phrase is attributed that he set him at not. And we will see what that whole phrase means and how he did that in our third point. And so our first point is looking at this tribunal before the church of the day, before um, Caiaphas, the council, the high priest, and four thoughts as we work through here in the narrative. The first is how what we're seeing again, even as we move by verse from verse to verse, fulfillment of the scriptures is taking place. This, this is very critical because it's part of helping us understand this, this is and it must be the Messiah. Scripture is being fulfilled right before our eyes. And just three notes there. Um, just before the trials, we could say that Isaiah 53, 3 was fulfilled because the disciples themselves could say, We hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Where is Thomas? And where is Peter? He's still crying from having denied Christ three times. Where, where's John? He's silent. He, he's present in this room in the tribunal. We don't know if he's there the very next day, if he gained that attendance. But John is nowhere to be found. Matthew is nowhere. They hid, as it were, their faces from him. They esteemed him not. We don't hear about his disciples we don't hear of the ladies, and, and of course it's not, I'm sure many would like to be there, but they, they are kept, the system keeps them away, or their hearts are keeping them away, and scripture is being fulfilled. And then second portion of scripture, still Isaiah 53, 4, we could say at the very beginnings of this, these trials is fulfilled, the, the second, um, Isaiah 53, 4 itself, let me, let me read that verse Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I didn't read this part that happened at night, but remember the guards received Lord Jesus. Verse 63, they mocked him. Verse 64, they blindfolded him. They struck him on the face. They said, who is it that struck you? Prophesy. In verse 65, many other things blasphemously spake they against him. You see, anyone in the watching world, any of those religious people should have been seeing that and thinking, wait, stop. I'm seeing Isaiah 53, 4. This is a man being stricken, being smitten. And we're the ones doing it. Scripture is being fulfilled. Could he be the servant of the Lord? It was, in a sense, meant to stop them at any moment on their tracks. Anyone who knew their Bibles well could have in that very moment say, wait, let's stop, let's worship him. See, that's what later some people do. The thief on the cross, the centurion. And then, of course, after the resurrection of Christ, Thomas, he just takes one look and he just calls him, My God and my Lord. So finally, those scriptures came in. And then, thirdly, that we could say, still in Isaiah 53 3, just talking about the series of trials, like a conclusion, not the little beginning of the trials, the trial itself, but if I read to you Isaiah um, 53, Another portion of three, it says, He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the result of the trials. He's rejected. He's despised. His disciples are all afraid. 
The religious system sent him to die. The civil authorities send him to the cross. He's despised and rejected of men. And as he carries his cross to Calvary, he's the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And every step that Jesus takes, it's, it's prophecy being fulfilled all the way to the death and to the resurrection and even the ascension. So that's the first thought, the fulfillment of Scripture. But the second thought is, is, is this accusation of blasphemy. And notice, notice the tension here, verse 65, which which just before what we read today, because we had covered this, this is what they were doing to Jesus. They were blasphemously speaking against Jesus. And now that Jesus is able to speak, they accuse him of blasphemy. And when they do that, they are committing another blasphemy. And this brings to mind the reality that we've been considering. Remember, ever since Jesus in the upper room and in the Lord's Supper and and seeing what was taking place, the betrayer was there. They're all talking about who's going to be greater. Here's Peter thinking he's so great. And and, and then comes the the prayer in Gethsemane and, and they're all sleeping in indifference. And then Judas comes and there's betrayal and there's arrest. And remember, we're seeing there's this reality where Jesus is this island of, of holiness and purity. And, and he's, he's encouraging everyone. He's telling Peter he's praying for him. He's, he's showing so much peace, uh, so much patience to that one who will betray him. He is teaching those who are deciding who will be the greatest. He's teaching them humility and even promising them that there will be a day that they will sit upon thrones and rule with Him. He's he's this island of astonishing stability and holiness, but all around Him, sin. And now he arrives in the midst of those, those guards and he's smitten and afflicted. And they're blasphemously treating him. They ask him to speak and they accuse him of blasphemy. But notice, beloved, what's happening here. Remember, we saw this. Sins all surrounding him. What took Jesus to the cross is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Now, beloved, appreciate this with a solemn wonder. That all those sins that were roaming around Christ, the sins of His own were imputed upon He who was pure and stable, the holiest man who's ever walked upon the face of the earth, became when He was on that cross in the eyes of the Father the most sinful. Because all those sins that were only surrounding, became imputed. Now notice, this this is the stark reality about the tribunal. It it was literally happening in in, in like the book system. They they were imputing upon Jesus the sin of blasphemy. And later on in our second point, we'll see they'll, they'll impute the crime of treason. And they're, of course, not the ones who have power to put this sin on Jesus because Jesus never committed it. There's, there's, this, there's this irony here in the text where the very man who will condemn Jesus is the man who's doing all he can. There are at least four ways by which he's saying he is innocent. He is innocent. He is innocent because that is the truth. But since this man has no holiness in him, he ends up being the very man who says he's a criminal. But he said that in a sense only once, but he said four times that Jesus is holy. I find no fault in him. He tried three times later when he got Jesus back. That's, of course, communicating. That is the truth about Jesus. He is holy. But in the religious books of the day and in the civil books of the day, they're imputing these crimes upon the Lord Jesus. Now, that, of course, is not as powerful as the spiritual reality that the Father is laying upon him the sins of of us all from Romans. Beloved, see, this, this is what's happening. This is why going through the tribunals is important. The accusation of blasphemy. Well, now look at in our third thought here. The, the claim to divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, 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 it's, it's, it's clear and at the same time you need to read carefully or else you will miss it. 
But if we see verse 67, there's the question. Art thou the Christ? That's title number one for the Lord Jesus. um, That they're asking, are you the Messiah? Tell us. And then Jesus said, if I tell you, ye will not believe. That, That is literally saying, I am, but I will not even give you a straight question. You are not worthy of it. You won't believe me. And if I asked you if I am, you will not answer, nor let me go. But then notice what he says. Hereafter shall the Son of Man. So what Jesus is doing is equating his title of Christ to the title Son of Man. To sit on the right hand of the power of God. And as soon as he says and refers to himself as a Son of Man, they use another title to the, to the Messiah And they say in verse 70, Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? We have here an amazing opportunity for understanding. It's like a theological moment here where God's Word is equivalenting, making equal the name Christ, the title Christ, the title Son of Man, and the title Son of God. And there are critics today who say Christ... He himself never made any um, claims of divinity. I remember speaking to a man, and he was saying that. I I don't see why people emphasize his divinity so much. I've never seen anywhere that Jesus is doing that. See, many people either don't read their Bibles or read very um, superficially, but this is what's happening here. Jesus is making a claim to divinity. He is equaling himself to the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Christ. And in the Christ, we often speak of this title. We know it means anointed. It means the Messiah, the the one that God set apart. There were many anointed. One, kings were anointed, priests were anointed. So that term could be used for other people in their offices, but there were many verses that were clearly pointing to the anointed one and that was the prophet with a capital P and when the Lord Jesus came Luke came to earth Luke is is so clear to announce this is the Christ remember um, the angels when when he's born in Luke 2 11 for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord so from the very beginning of this book, we have, we have Christ, Jesus being announced as a Christ. When, when Simeon receives him, that's in Luke 2.25, he's, he's acknowledging that God would, would not have let him see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he praises God that he's able to see the anointed one in his arms. Um, it's in Luke that we have one, one of the references of Peter confessing the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ of God. That's Luke 9.20. So that's one of the terms. But let me just give you one reference, and I've done that before, I'm sure, and you may have read, of the Son of Man. I want to read from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, to, to help you, to help refresh in our minds how truly that title was connected to divinity. And, and it, it's a beautiful passage because it's from the Old Testament and it shows that not only the Father had a divine nature, but also the Son, the Son of Man. The Father here will be under the name the Ancient of Days. So Daniel 7.13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven So this is exactly what Jesus is referencing in 69. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. So he's this vision of Daniel. I saw the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. See, one divine being coming before another divine being that that Daniel is seeing in his vision. And they brought him before him. And verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. See, this is why they knew that the Messiah would be a king, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So they knew he would be a very very powerful king. Rome would have absolutely no sway over him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is where divinity comes in. Which shall not pass away in His kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. But now you, you see the problem. Of probably a lot of Jews looked at that and thought that was poetic. They thought, well, the Messiah will live his 80 years and die, but, but then another one from the line of David will be king. Maybe they thought that way in human terms. Just like God had promised David that the throne would be to him forever. But this was literal. This son of man, who is the Messiah, would be a king over the whole universe, the whole world, all peoples, all languages, and he would never, ever die. They didn't understand that this was a passage to be taken literally. And Jesus is making reference to himself as a son of man, and then they ask, so so you are the son of God? When they ask that, they, they are teaching us that this is how they thought. They thought the Christ is a Son of Man. The Son of Man is the Son of God. And as for the title Son of God, it's also attested in Luke. Remember, it was Gabriel when he comes to Mary and says that she will have a child. In Luke one thirty-two. it says, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. That's the title of the Christ, the Son of God. And and when Jesus is baptized, remember those two moments that God spoke from heaven. When Jesus is baptized, and in the Mount of Transfiguration, there is a phrase where the Father says, This is my Son. In Luke 3.22, He says, Thou art my beloved Son. And in the Transfiguration, He said, This is my Son. I I just think this is important for us to see that in this little tribunal um, narrative, we have Christ making clear declaration of His divinity. And this is why they accuse Him of blasphemy. Now, this leads us to our second point. Because with their certainty that Jesus is, is committing this crime of blasphemy, because they acknowledge You are making yourself equal to God. You are saying you are the promised Messiah. In in their minds, they were confused about the Messiah being divine or not. But they, they realize saying you are the Messiah for us is not true. So you are committing blasphemy. You will go to Pilate. Now, verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 23 says, The whole multitude of them arose. There's, there's a message right there, at least a little note for us to take. As we, as we look at this next um, passage where we will see Pilate asking the question, Art thou the king? Look what's happening. There's a unifying of the powers of evil. There's a joining together of that which had been at enmity because they they have found one whom they hate in concert. And this is happening from from the religious side and it is happening from the Roman side. And so the first thought we could say here is the the sad reality of how evil unites against good because of hatred toward good, common hatred. What am I referring to on the side of the religious tribunal? Well, it says, the multitude of them arose. Um, we, we heard that these were the chief priests and scribes, and, and that whole council was the Sanhedrin, and it was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and you know how there was always that division. Paul later will make use of that division, and we saw the big havoc that it caused. But right now, Pharisees and Sadducees, even though they hate each other, they hate Jesus more, and so they join. They make a treaty, and they go against the one they hate. And you you saw how we read that after Pilate and Herod has some interchange regarding Jesus, it says in verse 12 of chapter 23... And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. So it's interesting to see that in the religious world, they're making friends because they hate Jesus. In the civil world, they're making friends because they hate Jesus, even though they hated each other. 
And beloved, this is a little, a little something of what will happen in this world. We, we live in a world, sometimes we wonder, how, how will there be a one world order that will be against the church? Because there's a lot of hatred against each other. And many of these who hate the others aren't necessarily um, the people from the world hating believers. But yes, they, they do hate each other. But there will be a day in which they'll consort together to hate the church. That will be towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what was happening here against the Lord Jesus. So that's the first thought in the second point. The the second thought is regarding the crime of treason. So you notice here, they come to Pilate and they they say that this man is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They know that the word Christ doesn't bear much to them, but the word king does. And, and you notice what they're doing. They're, they're literally interpreting their own scriptures, helping Pilate understand what Christ is, but not because they're catechizing Pilate and who their Messiah is, but because they hate their Messiah, who's true, but they think is false. They, they are interpreting the scriptures for Pilate, Because the king portion of who Jesus is, is what would put him in trouble before Pilate. But see, Pilate has a mind that that is very reasonable in one sense. He's very pragmatic, and he looks at this man, and and he he envisions how in the world could this man subvert Rome. He's, He's already under my feet. There's no way. Where is his army? Where is his ammunition where is his money where are his plans where is his headquarters he didn't even have a home so Pilate can see through all of that and we don't know all the questions he he asked but it says clearly that he spoke to him and realized there's there's no fear this man doesn't pose any any fear to Caesar he could see right through he didn't understand the spiritual reality of his kingdom but he probably thought that, that Christ was, was just a man who didn't... He was, he was just probably not in his right mind, but innocent of that crime. But we'll come back to the treason element in just a little bit. We need to talk a little bit now about the innocent of, innocence of Jesus. So you saw how in verse 4, Pilate says to the chief priests, I find no fault in this man. So this is an official statement. And as he hears that he is from the district of Herod, he sends him to Herod. See, what he's doing there is, in a sense, washing his hands for the first time. And he's saying, I want to have nothing to do with this. He's not becoming a protector of Christ. He's just wanting to get free and rid of what he sees as a trouble in being instigated. He doesn't know, perhaps, how many people are following this man. Those people will get angry at me if I do crucify him. So I prefer to send him to Herod. And so then, we will talk about Herod's tribunal in in just a little bit in our third point. But then from Herod, he comes back. And in verse 14, notice what it says. He he says, Ye have brought me this man, and as one who perverts the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault. And then he says in verse 15, Nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him. And so this is also official. That's a second official statement that this, um, this man who is prefect of Judea is making. So Christ already now has been um, declared innocent two times. It's in verse 14 is the second. But then if you go to verse 16, he just, he's just somehow again trying to wash his hand for the, for the second time in a symbolic way, saying, I'll just chastise him and let him go. And as in mind, he's thinking, if I do that, it might make them happy, and that might make me get rid of this whole problem without having to kill him. But they do not like that. In, in verse 18, they refer to Barabbas. You know, the, the full story is in other Gospels where he does offer to release him because of that one Custom that in Passover time he could release one of the Jews who were in prison. And there happened to be Barabbas. 
And the people right now say, we, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Now Luke makes it clear who Barabbas is for us to understand who they prefer instead of Jesus. Barabbas is a man who was causing sedition. He was causing uprisal. He, he was a man, in a sense, who would be perhaps a zealot, perhaps someone trying to go against Rome. We don't know exactly what sedition he was causing. It could be just another false religion other than, than the Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees. We don't know. But he was also a murderer, accused of being a murderer. And the impact there is that when they prefer that man over Jesus, they're literally saying, Jesus for us is worse than a murderer. You see here, beloved, the, the blindness of unbelief. This, this is the man who gave life to those who were dead. He loved these very people. Who, who would know if some of those are the ones who ate something of the bread and of the fish that he produced? But they're here now wanting a murderer instead of Jesus. And what does, what does Herod do in verse 20? It says, Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to, to them. Now, in, in this second trial, this is the second time. And then in verse 22, it says, And he said unto them the third time, What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Chastise him and let him go. But their insistence and their voices and their crying out was so loud. And we know in Matthew it says that they did that threat, saying he, he is one who... Anyone who is a friend of Caesar would not accept a man who is saying that he's in the place of Caesar. He's saying he's a king. They're basically saying, we're going to tell on you, Pilate. And so he delivered Jesus. So in the first time that Jesus was with Pilate, there was one attempt to set him free. When Christ comes a second time, there's three more attempts. Four declarations in, in terms of official records that this is an innocent man and yet he was released unto them to be crucified with the crime of treason and let me go to our third point even though now we, we go back one of the little trial sections we'll put it all together in our conclusion in a little bit our third point is looking at that phrase that his men of war, Herod with his men of war, set him at naught. They were denying his messiahship and his kingship and even his humanity. This is what they were doing. So at first, Herod, Herod was very happy to receive Jesus. The first thought in this last point is... Herod's evil admiration for Jesus. And the way it would apply to your heart and mind is to understand that unbelievers may admire Jesus, but it's never enough to save your soul. There's even a danger in simply admiring the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. In verse 8, it says that when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. There were many people in, in the life of Christ who in their exceeding gladness to see Jesus, they either were converted already or became converted because they wanted Christ. They, they weren't just wanting something from Christ. And see, that's the key here. He had heard that this man was the miracle maker and he was hoping Jesus would woo him and humor him with some kind of amazing thing. And when Jesus didn't do that, Herod made sure, made sure that he would still be humored by Christ in his being mocked by himself and his guards. And so he made him as if he were nothing. Beloved, so I don't know everyone's heart, but this is a danger of people who go to church are, but are still not true believers. The very fact that you would be in church 
would make you into one who admires the things of God. And you would admire the Bible, perhaps. Admire passages of God's Word. Admire Christ. But don't ever settle for mere admiration. For just being exceeding glad, even. You need Christ Himself. You need to trust Him. You need to love Him. You need to be as one who sees Him being mocked and seeing that He's going the way of the cross. And, and that's what attracts you to Him because you realize, I need Him in His suffering and sacrifice because that's what gives me life. And then you love Him for what He did in holiness, living a holy life, in a, gra- a grateful life. Don't ever be satisfied just being admired. Now, Another sad thing is that there are many who may be true believers, but your admiration for Christ might not be so strong. And how sad that we would find unbelievers admired with Christ, that they want to see Him at least, and believers who who are not so admired and don't have much time for Christ. Because if we would confess, could we say that our time in reading the Bible of every single one of us is really showing admiration of Christ. May may the Lord help each one of us to think, Lord, I want to spend time where I am admiring Christ because I need more of Christ. Help me as I read these portions of Scripture to find Christ and to learn more of Christ and be truly admired, admired of Christ and in a biblical saving way. So that's the one thought. And the last thought, only, only two main thoughts here in this last point, is this reality of him setting him at naught. This, some translations has it that he was treated in contempt. Um, it's to treat someone as of no account. It's to make light of someone. But just the very word not, when you translate that into modern English, that would be nothing. They set him as if he were nothing. That is the plain sense of the text. This man Herod, who received his very being from the one whom he was facing treated his creator as if he were nothing. The one who gave Herod breath and life and made him something in this world, a king, he had authority, he had influence. In the eyes of the world, he had everything. Biblically speaking, he was the nothing. But he made Jesus feel as if he was nothing. He treated him as if he was nothing. And what I want to do in the last few moments is, is bring together what we had this morning. I want to even read that portion you might remember in Isaiah 40, verse 15, how God sees the nations. The nations and people in our own eyes, we think we are so grand, that we are so powerful. But we read that verse this morning, Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. You know how if you're looking at one of the islands in the Pacific or in the Caribbean and you, and you type in Google the island and, and, and it shows and it's a speck. And you think, this, this is like a speck of dust. And as, as you go closer, you start realizing there's green and there are little towns and there are little streets. And, and you wonder, how can there be so many neighborhoods in this tiny little speck? Well, see, God, He sees this world from, from like in another planet and He looks and, and, and the islands are like a little thing. And then if you go to verse 17, it says, All nations before him. So God is putting together here all of North America and South and Oceania and putting all those islands in all of Asia and all of Africa. And he says, All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing. 
And you see that obviously God's word is here piling metaphor over metaphor and, and, and in a sense of, of, of irony. You, you can't have anything less than nothing. But, but the prophet is emphasizing the reality of our littleness. And then he says, and vanity. And the word vanity is vapor. You know, boys and girls, you see the water boiling, you see water, but the moment it's vapor, you just see a little bit of that smoke, and before you know it, it's gone. And that's what God is saying, what the nations are. And so notice what's happening. This man, Herod, thinks he's so grand that he can make Jesus the nothing. When God's word says that he and all his kingdom is nothing. That shows the pride of the heart of man. But why? Why is Jesus suffering this being seen and treated as nothing? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, our first parents, in our sinless perfection, where our first parents bore the perfect image of God, unmarred, without any sin, without any transgression, without any rebellion, without any wickedness, they did show forth God's glory in a perfect, sinless way. The only, the only element that was less was their creatureliness, but it was pure. It was unstained, untarnished. They, they would live forever. They would not suffer. They would not sweat. They would not be sick. They would not bleed. They would not die. They would reflect God's holiness in their own. They would reflect God's rule as they would rule over all things that God gave them. They would reflect God's greatness in their own greatness in their capacities of, as Adam and Eve, father and mother of this whole world. They would reflect God's love in their own love. And it would be all perfect. No weakness. No error. They, they were something. They were creatures, but they were some great creatures. That's where we came from. But then they sinned. They fell. And God said to Adam that he would return to the dust from where he came. You see, we came from nothing. We came from the dust. But God made Adam and Eve in his image, and he made us into something. But when we fell, we went back to nothing. What is the value of dust? There's really no value. Dust are little particles. They're so light that they can be flowing everywhere. There's no benefit in them. They have no purpose. God said that that's what we are. The nations are that. Well, that's why Jesus had to be set at naught. Because he had to die for those who are nothing. Beloved, when we think we're something, we cannot be saved. Because Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. But we have to understand that our sickness is not that we just need a little mending. We are nothing. God just declared that if the nations are nothing, how much every citizen within a nation? See, because in, in ourselves, beloved, if we are in our own nature, with our sins piled upon us, the day we die, our, our bodies will stay in the grave, and, and then our soul will be far from God and waiting for judgment. Then judgment day comes, our bodies are resurrected, join with that soul, and then what will happen is these dear, sad reality that these souls will listen from God, I never knew you, depart from me. In hell forever. That's what this nothingness ends up in. And Jesus came to this earth willing to take that nothingness upon himself. So he puts himself before a Herod who thinks he's everything, and Herod sets him at naught. Beloved, that's. Wicked of Herod. But that is gracious of God that Jesus was willing to do even that. He was treated as nothing 
so that we who are truly nothing because of our sins, we can look to Jesus and become everything. Because you can become saved and there's nothing greater. You can become forgiven and there's nothing greater. You can receive the crown of glory and live in heaven forever and there's nowhere greater. You can have God as your Savior and Lord, and there's nothing greater. And you can be the Lord Jesus' younger brother or sister, and there's nothing greater. And, and then in heaven forever and ever to be like those angels in the host of heaven that just glorify God and repeat those hymns, holy, holy, holy to a God who truly is and merciful and kind. When you're saved, you, be, you receive everything. Because Christ was set at naught. And so all of these tribunals in every dimension that you look, we see Christ substituting His suffering so that you and I can be saved. Beloved, we live in a world, and you know what I mean, we are being bombarded from every side to believe we're something. That, that is the anti-gospel message. Because their message is you're something in yourself. I just mentioned that if you're in Christ, you have everything. So there's a place for the everythingness, but that's in Christ who became nothing for us because in and of ourselves, that is what we are. Now, these people who are claiming that we are everything and everything and everything, what happens to them when they die? They too turn to dust. Where can they be good to their promise? Nowhere. And that's why there's only um, um, sadness and, 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 and desperation in their message. Whoever listens to it for too long despairs. And whoever has a mind that's somewhat analytical can tell it's not true. But they're lost thinking, well, then what is the message? The message is that Christ became nothing for us who are because of the fall. And when we trust him, we will receive everything. Forgiveness, salvation, fellowship with Christ forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee that Thou did not spare Thine only begotten Son even to be set at naught, to be treated as nothing by this man who was so wicked with all his war fellows and by Pilate who was so, um, so fickle that he would go by the power of the voice of the people and not by the dictates of law and Annas and Caiaphas Lord who because they knew the scriptures would have known so much better and yet they had the man of sorrows before them and they could not see that or, or if they could they were willingly not believing in their true Messiah but Lord we thank thee Lord Jesus for going through all of this so that we may stand at the judgment day and be saved, that we may stand and not fall. Lord, we plead in behalf of those who, who are not ready for that judgment if it were to come to them today. We pray, Lord, that even now and as they go home, that they would still study this judgment of Christ. He was judged so that we will not be as we read in the catechism. That's what's so precious that He was in this earthly tribunal so that when we are in the heavenly one, we may be forgiven and pardoned and be seen as innocent because Christ was seen as guilty. Forgive us then, Lord, for all our sins. Cleanse us in the blood of Christ and make us ready, Lord, for judgment day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.